It's Friday, so it's time for the weekly wrap this week. It's Liston Mainchie's independent financial advisor and analyst talking to us from Johannesburg. Liston, we have to start with the State of the Nation address, which was last night. And the overwhelming feeling I get is of being underwhelmed from the headlines I've seen. And I confess I didn't listen to the thing, the whole thing, but you did. Tell me what you think. Uh, well, no, I didn't listen to it. There was a reason for that, which I won't go into. But okay, the okay. story is that I that I did I summarised it because I always think you know you you hear it and you get uh, taken up by that. But when you critically go through it bit by bit, so again, I'll put a plug in here. Any listeners uh, to the podcast who would like a copy of what I call my shorter version. But in it, I've put things in an order. So this is not the order in which the sonar was delivered. But I was really trying to look at the, you know, the, the differences and the types of message. So if I can, now I'll just give you a, a sort of a quick whistle-stop tour through it. And it starts with the background. And it says, you know, we have done much to meet people's basic needs to reduce poverty. And I agree with that. And then to transform a devastated economy. Now, the economy was devastated, they maintained, before they took it over. I would maintain that it's devastated since they took it over. It was running quite well and sweetly, actually, up until about 2007. So I'm not sure that they should be saying that, that uh, they've transformed a devastated economy. That's the first point. But yes. then they go on and say, we have operating an extremely difficult and, and challenging time. Most important point is our economy is not growing, not enough jobs are being created. Now, the point is they do not accept responsibility for any of that. I maintain, of course, that some of their benighted policies have caused an awful lot of this. It's a self-inflicted wound or it is an own goal. It goes on and says, you know, there's the persistent legacy of apartheid structural problems. Now, I agree there may be, but they've had 25 years to uh, deal with that. And I'm not sure that, that it's fair to keep on going right back to that. If you want to, we can go back to all the problems of the Boer War. Uh, you know, goodness me. I, so I'm just not sure who was writing some of this, who it was intended for. And I'm not sure that the overseas uh, foreign investors are going to be overly impressed when, when this refrain comes through. When you, when you say that, I, mean, I, I saw your notes this morning. What did they say about the legacy of apartheid? Because it has been a long time now, and of course it will never ever be removed from South African history, and it did set back the country enormously in so many ways. But what did um, President Ramaphosa say about the legacy of apartheid no, he, and its economic, he, economic implications? No, he just said our economy is not growing and not enough jobs are being created because of the persistent legacy of apartheid structural problems, mm. uh, both economic and social. Now, as I said, there is an element of truth there, but I think, you know, they can't duck behind it. Then he does mention, and quite correctly, and I think this is something where, you know, you have to uh, be honest and say there are things we can control and things we can't control. And the two that they have is rapid technological change that is ushering in a new world of work and a devastating changes in global climate, which we know has caused all kinds of problems from, you know, droughts to running out of water or nearly running out of water in Cape Town. And then he comes back and he says uh, the, that the lackluster economic performance has in part been the, caused by the load shedding. And for growth, we need a reliable and sustainable supply of electricity. 
So all good. As I say, you can put down all those points and, and, and make comments in, you know, in the margin uh, related to each of them. Then he points out ESCOM is facing serious financial, operational and structural problems and the financial position remains a matter of grave concern. Grave. So this is all what I'm calling the background. And then I've put it in under background because I think it's important. And there was very little dealt with, and it was actually dealt with right at the end. But I think, uh, Lindsay, if we're going to look into the future, and you know that's one of the things that you and I try to do on behalf of our listeners, is, is to just look at points that maybe they haven't thought of and, and the, the possible implications. And this one is the African continental free trade area. This has not something that's been there before. It has only just started. Right. I think it actually starts on the 1st of July. But it is related to the movement of goods and services, capital and means of production across the continent. Now, remember that the EU is exactly that in one shape or form. And, of course, with it goes mobility of labor. That's not mentioned in the sonar. But I think at some stage you and I want to pick up on this and, and maybe you know, explore and really say, well, what is it going to do? How is it going to do it? Because I can promise you a lot of our companies who have preempted this by going into Nigeria, Angola, uh, the uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo, Rwanda, Kenya, uh, in many cases, uh, it, it has not been a good uh, a trip so far. And part of it has been, you know, some of the politics that's been played and also some of the poor economic performance in those territories. But I think if you're going to say there's a game changer somewhere, uh, this is it. And we have to see how it plays out. And uh, the, the point they make, and, and this is part of the sonar, he says we will prioritize the cross-border value chains, and a whole lot of words after that. Hmm. But the point is, we will prioritize cross-border value chains. Now, we've had these cross-border value chains, obviously, with our very close neighbors, being Namibia, Botswana, uh, Swaziland, and Lesotho. I don't know that it's worked particularly well for an awful lot of them, uh, and, and I'll wait to see. But certainly, I, you know, that's something I would definitely like to know more about. But then I want to move on to what I call policy. And, I, you know, most important to me is that the ANC, uh, through their uh, regular meetings and generally five-year meetings, but maybe adjustable through the uh, hotler of the, of the NEC, mm -hmm. um, but it really is a question of what is that policy? And we'll deal with them fairly quickly now. Right. But the first part I really like, and this is the one I've been saying for ages. It starts and it says the government must create an enabling environment. And, of course, the question is enabling for what? I would have liked to see, and it's conspicuous by its absence, is market forces. It's still an awfully socialist-minded uh, a rhetoric here which says we will do this, we will do that, and the we being either the government or the ruling party, uh, we will do this. Just and before you go on, listen, just listen, just before you go on, I had this discussion with somebody and I said, here is a president who has amassed uh, a multi-billion rand 
fortune through capitalist forces and the free market. Also a little bit of really badly misplaced black economic empowerment in its early stages, but never mind that, push that aside. He's made a load of money through capitalism, and yet he's surrounded by people who are either socialists or Marxist-Leninists. And so there's this, this conflict within the ANC. It's a very difficult job for the gentleman. Absolutely. And and we'll get to that a little bit later under what I call the state of the ANC. Mm. Uh, but the um, statements under government must create an enabling environment. I agree with the state is able to effectively enable economic and social development. The word key there or the key word there is effectively because surely that's what governments worldwide are about. Now, we see the almost exact opposite in Trumpism. We see almost the opposite in Brexitism. And we see, you know, the, the, the difficulties in Greece and now Italy. So it, wonderful words is what I'm saying. Let's, let's see the flesh. Uh, but so, uh, and I like this first point, the state is to effectively play its role as an enabler right. and a regulator that sets rules and then redistributor that ensures that the most vulnerable in society are protected. Now, I think a lot of people wouldn't have heard any of those words in the state of the nation. It's because I've moved them up in the ranks, uh, you know, where they were. No, I didn't make these words up. They are in that uh, sonar. And it requires a capable and developmental state which is fine if you know what developmental state means. And by the way, this word state, uh, you're not sure whether it means the government or whether it means the party or actually the word state encompasses all the institutions, not just parliament, not just parties. Uh, you know, it's the full institutions and the full economic framework, including le legal and legal uh, precedent. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by the use of the word state in this particular uh, uh, situation. But so the state must drive transformation. Now, we've had that for 25 years, and I will go as far as to say a worthy cause, 100%. The way it has operated, unfortunately, has led to most of the problems that we currently have. And there's a very strange chain of the way that happened, and I don't want to go into that. But here it goes on. It says, provides the institutions and infrastructure that enable the economy and society to operate. Now, you know, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but does it have to be in the state of the nation? It's just so that people reading it will kind of nod their head and say, yes, I agree. Uh, and then it requires that there be efficiency, cost containment, cooperative governance and strategic alignment. My goodness me, just put another five words into that phrase. Uh, it, it's just buzz phrase, mm. um, uh, whatever you like to call it. Then the next point is arresting the decline in state capacity <laughs> allied with restructuring our model of service delivery. Now, here we get to actual what we plan to do, but it's in a policy framework. Then coming back to what we think went wrong is we're committed to building an ethical state ethical state. There's no place for corruption. What we need are skilled and professional public servants of the highest moral standards. Well, give it a tick, chaps, but what have we seen in the past? 
And that goes on, and it's not quite in the same order, but there is a statement in the State of the Nation Address which says we must ensure that public money stolen is returned. Right. Now, that's what we've all been waiting to see. At least it's in the, in the State of the Nation. We go on a, a little bit, and, and it, as I said, I can go on to an awfully long thing about this one. Yes, we know that they reaffirmed the, con, the uh, constitutional mandate of the Reserve Bank, and we got rid of that one. And they say they have, will have a strong commitment to macroeconomic and fiscal policy framework mm -hmm. uh, by the more efficient use of budgeted money. Now, I hope people are getting the feeling here, Lindsay, that there's an awful lot you can agree with, but you just want to know what does it really mean? How will we see it? By when will we see it? Then we go on, and here's the key. I think this is the absolute key to the way I would like people to understand the State of the Nation Address. They say we adopted the National Development Plan in 2012. Right. It's now 2019, seven years later. <laughs> and twice they say once reinvigorate the NDP. Another time they say restore the NDP. There was another word that began with re as well. And I was talking to Annabel Bishop, the chief economist at Investec earlier on today. And she said she found it fascinating the use of the word reimagine. I think it was reimagine industrial production or something like that. There's lots yes, of re's re there. Let's re this and re that. It's interesting. No, well, that's good. But no, the key point for listeners is that the NDP is on its way back. Okay. Now, an awful lot of people don't know what's in that. And by the way, the NDP is Including the relative me. of the RDP, the GEAR, the ASGISA, all of which were like Russian five-year plans. What we're going to achieve in five years, five years we haven't achieved it. We just have rehash the thing, give it a different name. And There's another re a rehash. But then we do it again. And then we do it again. It's, it's wonderful. So all I, have, all I know is I have to see this thing happen. And the champion of that NDP, by the way, was Trevor Manuel, who has specifically said he's not coming back. He now has a very nice job. Thank you. Um, <laughs> it goes on. This is the part that's also interesting. Yes. We are, have a new approach to infrastructure development. What's that then? Well, Spending the money? Approach, there wasn't one. We didn't do any infrastructure. No new roads, no new buildings, no new anything. But here we go. We're going to have a partnership between the public and private sectors. Now, I had wind of this before the election, so it's interesting that I heard it. It wasn't put out there for votes, vote catching or, 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 or vote uh, put off, but it's now in the public domain. It says there's a new approach to infrastructure development, and we're going to have financial and institutional measures to boost construction in which we prioritize water infrastructure, roads, and student accommodation. Oh, yeah. Now, I must say, that last one got me. That really annoys uh, me, actually. Think, I do not think it is a government to build student accommodation. Maybe I'm misreading what the intention here, but it's also a very nice vote-catching. Okay, and then the other one, which I thought was particularly interesting as part of the philosophy was we're going to stimulate local demand by buy local campaign. Now, I want to see that campaign. It's pushed quite hard in the sonar. So let's see what we're going to do about buy local. Now, I know for sure that an awful lot of our clothing manufacturer has been outsourced totally. You find very few of the cut, make, and trim, as they used to call it, CMT, uh, operators yes. still operating. Yeah. So this is... 
bringing back something. Let's see if it has legs. Then we go, and it says, and I think this is true, and it, I want to see exactly what they're going to do about it coming later. They say the unemployment rate among young South Africans of more than 50% is a national crisis. Well, I would have said that 10 years ago. I would have said that 20 years ago. Years ago. Uh, you know, golly, you know, wake up, good morning, smell the coffee. Uh, this really is what we have to have to do. Then they come into education and they go into early reading is the basic foundation that determines a child's educational progress. Now they've got mentors. They're going to get kids in primary school learning coding. <laughs> My goodness me, we have got people coming out of matric who can't do coding, and we're going to teach this at, 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 at primary school. Did you see, see – sorry to interrupt you again, Liston, but you're getting carried away here. <laughs> There's a lot of detail. <laughs> I, <am. laughs> I know you are. I know you can see, you're passionate about this subject, and quite right too. That's why we talk to you all so, so often. But there was um, a, treat, a tweet from a woman called Karen Richards who's a, a private investor but has gained a good deal of followers on, on Twitter because of her – very, very insightful tweets that she puts out and her thoughts. And she, on Youth Day, she put out a whole series of statistics about the youth of South Africa and how the education system has failed them and how many teachers can't actually construct a sentence, how many children at the age of 10 can't actually read or write and that sort of thing. And I, there, were, there were lots of them. I'll send it to you one day. But it was extraordinary Education should be right at the top of the long-term plan. There should be short, medium, and long-term plans in the sonar, and the long-term plan should start immediately. But it's an well, incredible there job. Something, there is something there, but again, it just is not properly done, has never been properly implemented. And, you know, so words are good. We must, and it's the, the, the plan is to have within five years all 10-year-olds must be able to read. Yes. Well, all I know is they should be reading at five. Five, exactly. They've lost five good years of reading by, by only waiting till 10. But never mind that. Then we come back to the story, which I think is, is very important, and it says we need a new social compact. What's that? And that requires a contribution from everyone. There must be durable partnerships between government, business, labor, communities, and civil society. And we must strengthen the social wage. I don't know what a social wage is. I think you can talk about a living wage, but a social wage, I'm not sure. Minimum and wage, I understand. Social wage, I don't. Yeah, exactly. And reduce the cost of living. Now, my goodness me, I, 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 I couldn't agree more, but it is, how are you going to do this? Hmm. With what? Have you got enough money? Are you going to reprioritize? Where? So, it's wonderful. And we need a new social compact. I actually think that the the last three years or so, we're exposing what had been going on in the past has created one of the biggest divisions that I've seen in our society. So th there's a need for reform, for sure. Then they're going to have accelerated land reform. We know about that one. Listen, you can't go on into, into every part of SONA, otherwise we'll be here all night. But uh, no. can, you, okay. can you get the uh, most important uh, points no, and then summarise for me, just, please? I'm just doing philosophy and then I will just come back to it. Okay. So the second major point is we'll focus on small and medium enterprises. Now, we've been begging for that for ages. In 2010, I went around the country, and I won't tell you all the people I went to. And uh, we said, 
most jobs are created at the bottom. It's part of the ecosystem. And I was rebuffed at every place that I went to oh, yeah. where the decision makers said, come back, we're busy with a restructure. No, you're asking for too little money. Our check size is three times what you're asking for. Don't waste our time. And if, if that was 10 years ago, my goodness me, the urgency is right now. And I certainly hope that the message is given over time to say that that will happen. Okay. And then they want to ensure that violent crime is at least halved over the next decade. Well, you've got something that you're going to measure and see whether it does or it doesn't. Okay. Then they have seven priorities, five fundamental goals, all good health, uh, and there's your word, uh, we will rebuild the foundations of our economy by revitalizing and expanding the productive sectors. Now, we are a resources-driven economy with a goodly bit of agriculture, and we must now reimagine our industrial strategy, and we must expand our high-tech industry. It's wonderful. So all I'm saying is, you know, I read this you know, with with great hope, and certainly there are enough positives in it to give me a bit of courage. But what I wanted to see was a recognition that past policies did not work, should not be repeated, because they cannot work. And I got exactly the opposite. We will, we will, we will, and we're just going to carry on. So, uh, if if you say you were underwhelmed, I think that's probably the best description that I can give uh, from my side. And the RAND, of course, you haven't mentioned ESCOM too much, but just briefly, if you would, on the ESCOM <laughs> 230 billion side, where's that money going to come from? Where's the money going to come well, again, from all these grand schemes? Yeah. Where's it coming from? Yeah, but that two, the bond market? 230 billion, mm. it, that 230 billion is over five years. But uh, uh, let's be honest, Lindsay, either you are serious about fixing SOEs or you're not. If you want to fix SAA, then say what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. And we've had this discussion many times. Uh, you have to have the right people in the right place. And when you come to ESCOM, I believe, and I've looked at their accounts, there's an awful lot there. Their, their revenues are enormous. If they can actually do things efficiently, but the problem ESCOM has, and I don't know of too many utilities elsewhere in the world that have this, that they cannot set their price. They have to take whatever inflation is, is operating. They have to take all kinds of wage increases, but they're not allowed to increase the price because that's not in the public interest. Yeah, well, not increasing the price is not in the public interest, but ESCOM failing is not in the public interest. I, it's a totally unacceptable uh, catch-22. So let's see how they go about it. And uh, I will be more than interested to see, who, you know, who replaces Pakamani Khadebi. Okay. Okay. Now, well, what's next now? Well, let's, let's have a look at the reaction of the markets. The RAND, first of all. The RAND went from the mid-1420s up to the 1440s. And, yeah, what do you think the international community will say when they have a look at the State of the Nation address and the funding that's needed and the grand plans that are also going to need funding? Not Again, we've got it. to wait for the Minister of Finance here because, you know, the numbers are not given. These are wish lists and we, we plan to and we're having a, another group of people, you know, meet to discuss this and something is due in September. So actually this is not a numbers game at all. But the foreigners looking at this, as I say, on the one side, they have to say it was well modulated, well established, well presented, 
uh, and it said a number of the right things. Mm -hmm. What the foreigners will do is they will take their lead from us. And if we feel underwhelmed by it, they will feel doubly underwhelmed. If we loved it, they would love it. So I think that is the key. Okay, good. Right, let's move on to other things now. And the uh, let's go to the overseas markets if we can, because one of the features of this week has been Mario Draghi, the uh, ECB supremo, who came out and said, yeah, we're going to cut rates. If things are going bad, we're going to cut rates. German, uh, German data isn't particularly good. So let's cut rates and let's continue quantitative easing. Instead of curtailing quantitative easing, in other words, indulging in quantitative tightening, we're going to quantitative ease again, and we're going to cut rates. And then, the markets took off and then President Xi and Trump are going to get together and cozy up over a cup of green tea at the G20 in a week's time and the markets took off as well. They really want to go higher, don't they? And I'm losing my bet again, Liston. I'm losing <laughs> or have I lost it? <laughs> well, not, not, not yet. But again, a lot of this is exactly what you and I have been discussing is that people are not worried particularly about company earnings and valuations. When your alternative is 2%, 0% or negative percent, anything is good. Anything else, just give me. Yes. I'll go and buy a property for $100 million because I can borrow at 2% to buy it with. And uh, the same problem occurs for companies. And have you seen the number of, of uh, initial public offerings coming to market? So the real question is where are we in the cycle? And there's no doubt in my mind that we are in an interest rate tightening part of the cycle. Only the uh, powers that be, meaning central banks, are too scared of the politicians, except for the Bank of England and except for the Bank of Norway. They're saying, no, my goodness me, you know, when you've got full employment like this, uh, you know, and cutting rates is about the worst thing you can do. Now, there's a fellow writes out of America by the name of David Stockman. He was on uh, Ronald Reagan's team, so he's been around an awfully long time. I speak to him occasionally, yes. He's, he's, a, he's a good chap. About the worst that anybody could do by way of government. Uh, needless to say, he is not a fan of Donald Trump. No, he's not. I speak to David Stockman. He's, I don't know if he's become a little bit more eccentric since he was the economic advisor to Ronald Reagan and the Ronald Reagan administration. But yes, he, he certainly doesn't like Mr. Trump. He's a Republican, but he doesn't like Mr. Trump. And yeah, he, he says some interesting things. I mean, he beats on the same drum a lot of the time, like lots of people do, like Peter Schiff, for example, does. But um, sometimes they get it right. And when they get it right, they get it spectacularly right, Liston. But I think if you come back to the dovishness, I think central banks have painted themselves into a corner. There is almost no way that they can raise rates without causing some degree of carnage. Yeah. What they did was because people had borrowed too much and it had been a bad idea, they dropped rates and, and allowed them to borrow more. So the levels of borrowing now are higher than they were before the global financial crisis. I don't say all the risks are as bad as they were, but I do say how do you raise rates on that enormous balloon of debt? It will cause a problem. The only way you can raise rates on a big pile of money is if their economic growth is equal or it is, is creating a, a, a way for people to repay debt when it when the debt goes up 
And again, this is the, the surprise to me, is that not many of the central bankers seem to think that it would do any, any good to raise rates by half a percent. And by the way, dropping interest rates half a percent don't, doesn't do much at all. No. So the euphoria or the uh, uh, whatever you want to call it, you know, that, that stems from the thought that they may drop rates just beyond me. Uh, yeah, I really think what we're going to see is, uh, you know, corporate earnings battling. And a lot of that is courtesy of having to find alternative higher cost suppliers for a lot of American business. We've got a problem in, in the, the, the wheatlands and the cornlands in particular in the United States, and that problem is too much rain. So, again, it's not something that Donald Trump can say, well, go and do something about it, uh, uh, Jerome. Uh, and Jerome says, well, what can I do about weather? Mm. So I think one, one way or the other, we're living in that, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, Indian summer, magic patch, you know, <laughs> things are, are actually cooling off, but suddenly it feels like summer. And uh, <laughs> when you see some of the, the items that are coming to market, it is also a sign of the times as far as I'm concerned. When you see the valuations that are being given to vegetarian burgers, I, I just go, really? I know lots of people, you know, prefer vegetarian to meat, right. uh, but beyond meat is beyond me. Uh, beyond meat is going to be the future. I mean, we know that, but unfortunately what will happen is to beyond meat, never mind these absurd valuations, it's gone from from $25 a share to 150 or whatever it was at its peak, and is that the barriers to entry are pretty low. So it will be plagiarised, it will be bastardised, and there will be others coming in. So I wouldn't touch it with a barge pole, but I do think it is the future, because otherwise the planet will be destroyed. And you, you may not be an environmentalist, you may be one of the Trumpsters that doesn't believe in climate change, but the, the, the companies like Beyond Meat will be the future, Liston, and I think we all have to accept that. Well, just on climate change, Lindsay, I just think maybe the, the listeners and, and, and to your podcast don't always get to read these various items, but there's now significant research uh, you know, particularly about glaciers melting yes. uh, faster than expected In and the, the permafrost yes. uh, 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 giving up 70 years earlier than the, the other research that they were checking up on uh, would have indicated. And uh, I think that is hugely important in the way that we approach anything and everything related to investments. So, Two things that I think people are underestimating is, number one, you know, the tensions in the Middle East. And again, you don't have to be a genius to go and have a look at the map and find out where the Straits of Hormuz are <laughs> and uh, just how important they are. 21 million barrels a day flows through the Straits. 20% of the world's oil supply comes through the Straits of Hormuz. And it's a contentious issue yet again. It has been throughout its history because it's such Absolutely. a It's so easy to control, you see. You just send out a couple of boats, you blow up a couple of tankers, and there the, the world is the world is is stuffed. Well, a couple of limpet mines do wonders. Yes, exactly. And I wonder who did that. Let's talk about Iran and the, the United States because I was watching CNN about an hour before this um, chat with you. And they said that on Thursday night, they were going to attack 
there was an attack order on Iran from the Trump administration. And then he pulled back at the last minute. Well done to him for doing so. But there was the threat of an attack. And CNN went through this whole scenario. What would a war with Iran look like? And they, they, they laid it out very well. They're very anti-Trump, but this was a very measured report. And the, the implications of even a simple act like whatever it was, a tactical strike on, on some nuclear facility, whatever it was, would be manifold. It would be disastrous for the world economy in the short term, I think. So quite, quite, quite startling stuff. Well, again, I just think too many people are just imagining or reimagining that it uh, it is not that important. It's been there, you know, all our time. We don't really have to worry about it. But I would honestly say that uh, that's uh, if there's anything that's going to change my mind about an awful lot, it's going to be that. So I'm watching that particularly carefully right now. Yeah, indeed. And that leads us to the final point of this uh, extended edition of the Weekly Wrap with Liston Mainchies. And that's the gold price. The gold price has is currently hovering around $1,400 an ounce. Five, six weeks ago, it was just below $1,280 an ounce. And I spoke to the man, Peter Schiff, whom I, I referred to earlier on. And also, I spoke to a hedge fund manager in London who was speaking to me from Switzerland and, uh, and lovingly caressing his gold bars that he's got in a vault there and says, this thing's going to 1,500 minimum. And that was when it was 1,280, 1,290. And look at this thing go, Liston. This is a proper bull market. Yes, it is. Now, again, you get my weekly charts. And yes. uh, gold is particularly volatile, let's, let's admit to that. But just the, the mistrust of the world situation is enough to move a very small amount of investable money into gold. And the end has got to be more demand, uh, lower supply uh, equals higher prices. So that's Econ 101. Mm. But typically as well, you know, people get to a party late. So I know you, you've dealt with people who talk about Elliott waves and all sorts of things. Yes. But I think if there's any, any commodity that is given to Elliott wave theory, it would be gold. And if you remember when I sent out my outlook for 2019 in late December last year, and at least one person came back to me and said, what do you mean? But what my sentence read, for a number of reasons, I am more positive on the gold price than I have been for years. And he came back and he said, what exactly are those reasons? Mm. And I said, no, I'm not going into that now. And I certainly couldn't share that with one person. If I'm going to say anything, I have to say it to a lot of people. But a lot of it was, in fact, related to the trade wars, uh, the uh, uh, Brexit story and the uh, uh, unhappiness in the Middle East. So I say, if you've got you know complications in virtually every region of the world, it makes sense, I think, for some people to say, well, you know, what else is there? And uh, the, it is certainly possible to do quite a bit, uh, you know, in an instant by trading in gold. It wouldn't be possible to do it in rhodium. There wouldn't be enough rhodium around. Yes. But there's plenty of gold around that you can borrow to either short sell or there's plenty of gold that people are still willing to uh, let go at something as uh, like uh, uh, $1,400 an ounce. And by the way, it's only just recently that the RAND gold price has hit new highs. It's yes. been hovering sideways. My goodness me, I can think back probably a good five to seven years 
when I was talking about, a, a, you know, a Krugerrand costing 18,000 18, rand. And it's only a little bit above that now. Hmm. Exciting times, Liston. Challenging times, interesting times, and uh, times that um, will keep us busy on podcasts for many, many months to come. Liston Mainchi, thank you very much for your time. And uh, Liston is an independent financial advisor and analyst, and you can contact him. How, Liston? Liston at liston.coza, and Liston is with an O, L-I-S-T-O-N. Good luck with your Scottish reunion this evening, because apparently you claim to be half Scottish. Just briefly tell us about that. Do you want to know? Yeah, of course I want to know. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, both my grandparents on my mother's side uh, came out to South Africa from Scotland. <laughs> yeah. So I certainly had and uh, have been to a number of Highland Games and certainly watched uh, the military tattoo in Edinburgh. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I do have a bit of heritage there, not that I really, really would say that I aspire to an awful lot of tossing the caber and uh, other other energetic exercises from Scotland. But it has a proud history. <laughs> yes, it does. And I get the impression that you'll claim lineage just to get a free drink. Liston, thank you very much for your time again. Liston Mainchies uh, from Liston at liston.co.za. <laughs>